Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. This week, acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker has come under intense scrutiny. Many legal scholars and analysts claim that his appointment was unlawful or even unconstitutional. Whitaker's views have also been criticized. In addition to his criticism of the Mueller investigation, Whitaker has been criticized for dangerous and extreme legal views that are outside the mainstream. Was Whitaker's appointment lawful? Is he required to recuse himself? And what will his appointment mean for the Department of Justice? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. Usually, I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but this week, I'm joined by my friend Asha Rangappa, who is a professor at, the, at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. She is also a CNN legal analyst, a former FBI counterintelligence agent, uh, one of the most thoughtful commentators that I have uh, heard regarding the Mueller probe and read on Twitter, and my former classmate from Yale Law School. Welcome to the podcast, Asha. Thanks, Renato. I'm excited to be on with you. All right. So let's talk about Mr. Whitaker. I've, you know, when, when, when he was first appointed, I spent a lot of time focusing on you know, the Vacancies Act, how long he can be in, uh, in, uh, in that position and what he could potentially do to the Mueller probe. But now, uh, and I think the, this has been a bit, was a bit of a surprise to me. I didn't, um, I didn't foresee the, the array of challenges against him, but there's been a lot of focus these last several days uh, on whether or not his appointment is legal at all. And I think the most important criticism came from an op-ed written by uh, our mutual acquaintances or friends, uh, Neil Katyal, who was previously on the podcast, the former Solicitor General uh, and or acting Solicitor General, and George Conway, the best-known potential, potentially as the husband of Kellyanne Conway, but also a very accomplished conservative lawyer. And they wrote in their op-ed that they believe the appointment of uh, Matthew Whitaker violated the United States Constitution, which of course requires that principal appointments uh, like the Attorney General are confirmed by the Senate. And I'm I'm curious, first of all, Asha, I've read a little bit about your views on Twitter. What is your view of that argument, which got a lot of attention this week? I thought their argument was very compelling because, as you noted, a lot of the talk before that had been about the Federal Vacancy Reform Act. Um, and, you know, which is, which is an interpretation of that statute. And for the non-lawyers out there, it's important to remember that 
the Constitution always trumps statutes. So statutes can't be interpreted or applied in ways that violate the Constitution. And what Conway and Katyal argued is that because Whitaker is in a position where he reports directly to the president and is acting in the head of the agency, in a capacity in the head of the agency, that he is effectively a principal officer who would be required to be confirmed by the Senate um, under the Constitution, uh, notwithstanding anything that is ostensibly allowed under, uh, you know, any statutes. Yes, and, and to be clear... Uh, I think the fault line, the legal fault line, just so everyone can understand why there's some disagreement about this, is whether or not um, uh, Mr. Whitaker has been appointed or whether he's sort of a, temp- a temporary fill-in that doesn't rise to the level of an appointment for purposes of the Constitution. Would that be a fair way of summing that up? Yeah. So <laughs> our other legal colleague, Steve Vladek, um <laughs> Another yep. another Yale Law School alum um, wrote essentially a rebuttal to Conway and Katyal, um, which cites an 1898 case. And he cited that case to say the complication for the argument that Katyal and Conway make is that there's a Supreme Court case which said that when someone is appointed uh, for a temporary period and in special circumstances, that they don't become a principal officer, that they are still an inferior officer. And I, you know, I thought that was a really interesting argument that Steve Vladek made. Um, But then I went and I read that case quite carefully. And I think that it not only doesn't support that reading or doesn't actually undermine um, Conway and Katyal's argument, but I think it actually bolsters it in a particular way. And I can go into the facts of that case and, and why I think so, if you if you want. Yeah, I, you know, it, I read uh, your take on Twitter, uh, and I thought it was very interesting. And uh, that was one of the reasons why I thought this would be a great week to have you on the podcast. Because, as I think you pointed out on Twitter, this was an 1898 case involving sort of, I think, a, some sort of temporary uh, vacancy. And uh, was it the ambassador to Guam or something like that? No, it was to Siam, which oh. is now Thailand. Okay, okay. got so it. It's like halfway around the world. This is in 1898. Um, so what happens is that the consul um, and minister, basically, you know, the, the foreign representative uh, the, who speaks for the United States in Siam, becomes gravely ill. He must leave immediately. Uh, so he, he needs to leave. The vice consul, his second in command, um, is still in the United States. And in the case, it says something about him not being qualified, and they don't, it's not clear exactly what that is, but for whatever reason, he can't take the office. He's in the United States anyway. He probably can't get to Siam for many months um, because, you know, it's halfway around the world. He's going to have to sail there, etc. So effectively, there's no one there to perform this function. So uh, the consul, um, kind of acting under the president's authority, uh, basically appoints someone there as the vice consul to to basically perform these functions temporarily. And then, you know, he bolts uh, because he's he's sick. Um, 
And so the case is really about uh, pay. Like, how does this guy get paid? Does he get paid based on the salary of the principal office or the or the vice consul's office? And that gets into its own thing. But before they get to that, uh, they address some of the challenges to uh, the facts of this case. And one of them is exactly this issue that we have with Whitaker, which is, um, you know, he cannot perform the functions or, you know, he can't uh, perform the functions of the consul because he's not Senate confirmed. This is, this would, he was principal officer and, um, you know, he didn't go through that process and it's unconstitutional. And so the court says, no, 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 um, because he was performing this for, uh, in a temporary capacity and it was this emergency situation, that's not the case. And they say two things here which I think are really important. The first is that they explain that the emergency arises here not only because the consul, the principal officer, has taken ill, but also because the vice consul is not available. Um, so they're basically saying there's no one else here that, you know, is able to perform this function. Um, and then the other thing that they go on to note is they they go into the position of the vice consul and, you know, how it has evolved over time, and they say we conclude that a vice consul, which is the position he was actually hired for is an inferior office. And so even if he's doing some of the things that a consul does, he's still not a principal. And I think this is important because in the Whitaker case, not only is there not an emergency of the kind that is happening in this case, right? I mean, the deputy attorney general is there. Uh, there's even other Senate-confirmed individuals in that um, uh, office. You know, there's the solicitor general. There's the head of the office of legal counsel. But I think, importantly, Whitaker does not actually hold any kind of inferior office. Like, he hasn't been placed into some inferior, you know, role and then being told to fulfill the AG role as well. He's literally just been placed there. There's nothing, you know, when there's a new AG that comes in, he doesn't then go back to some other job. He was the chief of staff. That job is gone now because his boss left. Um so I believe that uh, that that case actually supports the view that in title and in function, Whitaker is a principal officer. Um, and I think that this supports Katyal and Conway's argument that for him to continue to do that, he would have to be set and confirmed. You know, I think that's very interesting, Asha. I mean, first of all, let me just to make sure everyone can follow along with us. Um, you know, some of the individuals that you were referring to a minute ago that are what you call Senate confirmed, who essentially have the vote, you know, had gone before the Senate and got votes of the United States senators are people like you said, the deputy attorney general, of course, is Rod Rosenstein, um, you know, Noel Francisco, who would be next in line as a solicitor general. And obviously, um, you know, our former classmate is, an, is the head of the office legal counsel and so forth. They've all been confirmed by the Senate. One thing that I think a lot of observers thought was unusual here is that uh, Trump went outside that group in the first place to to pick this guy up who's a staff member. I mean, I understand he's the chief of staff, but he's a staff member, not what I'll call a principal, like somebody who has actually uh, been Senate confirmed and heading something up. 
uh, it was already an unusual move, and it was part of the reason I think many th- believed that this was a, an effort to put somebody in who undermine would undermine the Mueller investigation. But I think um, what your point is is that the fact that all those people are just sitting there waiting to be tapped, if the, if need be, to be the acting attorney general, uh, is another thing that when a court is looking at this, they're going to find. Um, uh, troubling or going to distinguish it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I mean, let's also be honest here. This isn't, you know, Jeff Sessions didn't just resign out of the blue. He resigned, as his letter said, at the president's request, and we've been known this for a long time. This is not an emergency. This is not something unforeseen that has suddenly come up that has left us without anybody at the helm. You know, this is just not the kind of situation where the president's hands are tied and if he doesn't just find somebody quickly that there would be nobody left that, that there's nobody to enforce the laws of the United States. Um, he's not sick in Siam. Uh, right. right. I mean, S- Sessions literally, uh, you know, Sessions could have served another week, another month, another several months. You know, Trump could have just had him serve until a new choice got confirmed by the Senate. Uh, but in fact, uh, Trump was in such a hurry to get Sessions out of there the day after the midterms that he wouldn't even let Sessions stay through the end of the week at Sessions' own request. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is very much a uh, contrived emergency. Um, and I'll put that in air quotes, the emergency part. Um, and yeah, I think that that is relevant. I think one thing that folks listening uh, should realize is, you know, a lot of times they'll hear me make very definitive statements about the law. You know, this is what search warrants are and this is how they work. And this is what the standard is. Things that are very well settled that courts deal with on a daily basis uh, in the United States. You know, this is the type of question that is a tricky constitutional issue uh, that has not squarely been uh, before the Supreme Court before, uh, or I'm, I think maybe uh, be in front of any court, federal court before. So it's it's the reason why you're hearing different perspectives from different legal scholars. Uh, and um, me and Asha, and particularly Asha here laying out that case, are trying to help you understand that based on this 1898 case, which the Supreme Court will look at, this is how um, we could potentially expect the Supreme Court to rule on this issue. Right. And I think it's also, you know, in addition to just getting into the weeds of the case, like, let's just think about, you know, um, the the role of the attorney general and why it would be important for the person, even in a temporary capacity, to be Senate confirmed, right? This is the person who is enforcing all the federal laws of the United States. I mean, this is an awesome power. Um, this is the power to decide you know, who gets arre- who gets investigated, who gets arrested, who goes to jail, who might lose their life. And so, you know, the, the people of the country, um, and, you know, as a check on the president who, who could theoretically wield, put somebody there who could wield this power tyrannically or corruptly, has a very clear interest in making sure this person is vetted. Uh, so before they assume that role. So I think structurally the, very, the reason that the you know, advice and consent clause of, of the Constitution, this is where the Senate gets to have a say, is there is to prevent the president from you know, basically cherry-picking people that are going to go rogue um, in his cabinet. 
And I think that's, you know, structurally and functionally, you know, that's what we want to think about uh, in this situation as it plays out. Yeah, that's a great point, Asha. I mean, we talk sometimes about checks and balances. It's hard for sometimes for people to see concretely what that means. But this is a great example. We just had an election. Uh, on Tuesday, and there's there's some new senators there, and certainly all the senators have been elected from various states. And, you know, it's an opportunity for them and for um, the public to vet uh, this nominee. And really, if you look at, and we'll get to a little later in the uh, on the podcast, some of the views that he had, which I alluded to uh, in the intro, um, you know, for based upon those views, I have trouble believing he would have been Senate confirmed. And so you have a man who... Um, seems to, based upon his the views that he's expressed on CNN and elsewhere uh, when he was one of our colleagues, um, to have been somebody who, who has views towards the Mueller investigation, which I think are at the very least not appropriate. But in addition to that, he's taken some views and made some statements that, that, might, that might have actually put this in jeopardy. In other words, this isn't a guy who um, would have gotten confirmed anyways, who's, you know, a... Uh, um, a, a great choice uh, who is you know universally acclaimed. I think he's he would have been a controversial choice if he had been before the Senate. Right, and you know it's it, I always find it just so interesting that literally of all the people in the universe that President Trump could choose for something, it he always picks like the one person that everybody is like, what are you doing? Um, you know, because, I mean, he could pick somebody who's conservative, even an ally, um, to to be there. I mean, think about the, the Solicitor General, Noel Francisco. I mean, he's conservative. I don't think he has ever commented publicly on the Mueller investigation, but I think, you know, he, he I don't think he is, you know, a pro-Mueller. I mean, he, he would have potentially been... Um, Appeal, uh, appealing to both sides. Um, and yet he went, like you said, he just went outside this whole group and picked somebody that generates controversy. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I, I actually think that Francisco would have been very uh, harmful to the Mueller investigation based upon what I have no, know about him and have, and have seen and heard behind the scenes. But he's like you said, he's somebody who's careful and thoughtful about what he said publicly, et cetera. Right. And um, uh, Mr. Whitaker has been anything but. Uh, and, you know, I think that that is what appealed to Trump. You know, there's been all of this just this uh, reporting uh, since Whitaker's appointment. Some of it's very interesting about how Whitaker had much more interaction with the president than a typical staff member in that, you know, the president was not talking to Sessions, the attorney general, on a regular basis, which you would expect a president and the attorney general to do. But instead, Whitaker was having these conversations with them. And one of the things Trump liked about him was the fact that he seemed to dislike the Mueller investigation. Right. Um, right. Very, uh, very interesting. Now, and obviously, you know, he will uh, potentially face some challenge. I, you know, I, I read news that Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, I think he's your senator, Asha, um, is already considering filing a legal challenge um, to uh, Whitaker's appointment, which he would have standing to do as a senator, I would imagine. Um, yeah, maybe your your viewers might or your listeners, you know, there was some question even among lawyers of who has standing, because, mm-hmm. you know, standing is really about who's harmed by this. 
because you can't bring a lawsuit unless you can show the court that whatever action you know has been taken that you suffer some kind of harm from it and i think it's really interesting you know senators here have standing because their role their institutional role as senators as a check on the president is being circumvented um so really the the standing issue is partly vindicating that checks and balances that we talked about earlier exactly right i, I it seems to me that that blumenthal would have standing um, and let's talk, I think, briefly at least about um, the statutory challenge. I had talked very, very briefly in the last podcast about this, and this is essentially that there is a, uh, a statute that um, indicates that if the attorney general is, is not able to perform his duties, then the deputy attorney general uh, steps in and becomes the attorney general. You would think um, logically that the more specific statute would trump the uh, more general statute of the Vacancy uh, Vacancy Reform Act, but in fact, uh, in other contexts, I think in the NLRB and elsewhere, courts have held um, the opposite that the Vacancy Reform Act controls. Um, but there's been this debate about that, and there are some legal scholars, including some that we both know well, who have who have viewed that as the stronger argument. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll be honest, this is not my uh, bailiwick. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who have gotten into the weeds on this way more um, than I have. But, yes, as a matter of general statutory interpretation, like kind of the way that courts approach things, the rule of thumb is typically that the more specific statute is controlling and that's what you look for, because the idea is that Congress, when they've been very specific, um, have thought about it. Um, and I think here this is actually a DOJ. It's not a – it's an internal DOJ regulation. Is that right? Oh, Which I thought it, I thought it was some, actually a statute, but I could be is wrong. Is it a statute? Okay. Um, but anyway, that the more specific uh, controls. I think um, where there is – Why the confusion arises is that the succession statute, the specific one, references the Vacancy Reform Act. And to say the deputy attorney general is a principal assistant as defined in the Vacancy Reform Act. And so I think that is interpreted, or at least the the lawyers that have been, or scholars have been looking at it, have said that suggests that uh, in in making the succession statute, the intention was not to make it exclusive, but to say, here's the line of succession here, but there's also this other option if you wanted to mm-hmm. find somebody else. Um, and we'll see where they go. But as I mentioned before, the constitutional argument, if that is successful, would trump all of this. Exactly um, right. Yeah. So let's talk um, and turn to uh, Whitaker's views. And one thing I think is very interesting, uh, Mr. Whitaker was himself a CNN legal analyst. I remember, uh, I think it was maybe during the Comey testimony, you you both were on a panel uh, together um, at one point. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, we were. <laughs> I remember uh-huh. that. Um, I remember com- we were texting or something, and you you was on the panel with you. I thought it was. I remember that till now uh, from the state because I thought at the time I thought his his commentary was very um, aggressive. And what I mean by this is, I think commentators and analysts, some of them are very careful and cautious, and others perhaps are more um, extreme or or um, 
uh, jump leap to conclusions more than others. I have tried my best to be careful uh, and try to really not go any further than what I, I know or what can be very clearly inferred from what we know publicly. Uh, but Whitaker has made a number of statements and um, uh, and proclamations that I think it's hard for me to see how any commentator could credibly do. You know, one being he says there's no collusion, um, that there's a this is a witch hunt. He refers to it as a witch hunt at some point. He says at one point that the Trump Tower meeting uh, is something that anyone uh, would have done or would have accepted that meeting. Uh, it's hard for me to understand um how that could be credibly called legal analysis in any way. I'm curious what your thought is. Yeah, so full disclosure, I I know Matt Whitaker from CNN. We started around the same time, as you mentioned. We were on a, a panel together. We would see each other in the green room. So we chatted. We were, I think we followed each other on Facebook. I think he responded to various tweets of mine. Um, you know, I... I'll be honest. I think that his public commentary definitely creates an appearance of, uh, you know, partisanship and bias that would uh, that would require, um, you know, an ethics consultation in terms of whether that would require him to recuse. At the same time, I feel to be fair, as you know, Renato, and I think this is especially true for the people that are coming on to defend Trump's policy, or kind of coming on you know, from the further on the right, they're expected to come on and give the extreme argument. I mean, Alan Dershowitz does this. Um, and entertain, you know, TV, I think, if we are going to say you've been in the Department of Justice, I've been in the FBI, um, you know, people can have strong views, and I think the question is whether they can put them aside and approach a case objectively. And I argued this about Peter Strzok, um, about Andrew McCabe, you know, that definitely what, like, especially Peter Strzok, like, it was bad form. He shouldn't have been texting those things, but I still feel that I think he did his job. Um, So I want to be able to give Matt the benefit of the doubt in terms of his public commentary, because it's just like, it's TV. He was a private citizen. He can have those views. I think he needs to consult. I mean, I think if there are other things that we can talk about, like these conversations with the president. But, like, if that were it alone, um, I would say get the ethics people to look at it, and he would need to reassure the American people um, in no uncertain terms that he's uh, approaching this, you know, objectively. Honestly, I think if he were doing the right thing, he would just voluntarily recuse just to, because of the appearance of bias. But the public commentary, I don't know. I That's interesting. I, I'm not as, yeah, I, I don't uh, know, just having been doing the TV stuff, I'm like, yeah, they, there's a certain amount of shock value that I feel like um, some of those characters are expected to put on. That's interesting because I will tell you, I I try very hard. It's not always easy when you get questions thrown at you on the spot that you hadn't considered before and you're answering on your feet, I, I can see somebody making a mistake, but 
Um, you know, some of the things that he's saying, uh, I, I can never imagine myself moving my lips and saying anything like that. That's my own personal view on it. I do think, too. Well, and I think where I where and the reason that I'm saying this is because he was in AUSA for five months. I mean, you saw that long thread that I wrote when he was first appointed where I told people to come down from the ledge. Yeah, that he did spend half a decade in like socialized into the culture of the Department of Justice, which is you leave your politics at the door. Right. So he's not unfamiliar with it. Like, if he did not have that background, I would be totally with you. I feel like that counts for something. Um, it's, it's eroding more and more as I hear more and more about other things beyond what he's said or written. Um, but that's, that was why I was willing to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, because he is a former U.S. attorney who, who knows what people expect. Yeah, and that's interesting. I will say just another point I should make. I do believe, I agree with you, that people in the Justice Department, the FBI, deserve to be able to have private uh, political views. And if you're looking at somebody's text messages or private text messages and emails and saying, well, this person supports Trump or hates Trump or whatever it is, and they shouldn't be an FBI agent or shouldn't work at the Justice Department, I think that's absolutely wrong. I think... um, you know, I also I also think that for for Matt, obviously it's different because it's public, as you point out, it creates an appearance to people of being unfair. But for one thing I worry about for him is his judgment. In other words, you know, one of the important yeah. things a prosecutor has to have. I mean, if if you ask me what the number one quality that a prosecutor should have, I would say judgment is right up there. And the judgment of going on television and saying, sure, you know, let's meet with the Russians or there's you know, I proclaiming there's no collusion or whatever he's saying. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of I've been on, on TV with a lot of Republicans who said, well, let's see what happens in this investigation. But thus far, I've seen no evidence of whatever. I mean, that's that's that I think is a more a reasonable uh, view. But, um, you know, I, no, and I agree. And I think this again, this all points to why Senate confirmation would be such a helpful thing. Because then you, you know, in a Senate confirmation, you, you would gather information on how was he as a U.S. attorney? Did he exercise good judgment? Mm-hmm. You know, did he tend to come to things with predetermined conclusions? Or did he look at the evidence and make objective decisions? Um, you would be able to vet and have a fuller uh, context in which to place some of these public contexts. Are they a pattern of something that, uh, of a flaw that would keep, make him enable, unable to lead this agency? Or is this just a one-off that he was like performing for the cameras, you know? Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have that. So, right yeah, for sure. And, you know, one other interesting thing, so, and, and I think is relevant to a, another question I want to ask is that, um, you know, we now have learned that Whitaker uh, has, you know, offered. Well, first of all, he interviewed with Don McGahn, the White House counsel, for a role. Uh, you know, he interviewed to be the person, rep, the lawyer representing the administration against the Mueller investigation, a, a job that later went to Ty Cobb instead of going to him, and that he offered advice regarding how to. Um, convinced the Department of Justice to go after Trump's political opponents. Uh, and all of that suggests, obviously, somebody who's partisan and supports Trump, which I, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily 
uh, hold against somebody who's being appointed by by the President Trump. But uh, I am concerned when you know you have somebody interviewing for a job um, uh, to defend against an investigation that he now oversees. You know, there first of all, he's certainly going to learn in that interview. You would think. Um, the legal strategy, uh, or at least there'd be discussion of the legal strategy that the defense would have, he would learn of potentially in that of facts that would be presented by Don McGahn that you know he would need to you know be asked to deal with if he was in that role, uh, and you know all of that would suggest potentially a situation where he would be required to recuse himself. Uh, I have, when I was a federal prosecutor, I had at times colleagues. Uh, including in a case I had, I had a supervisor who had, when he was in private practice, been approached by the defendant I was indicting uh, about those matters. And he felt that the the fact that he had one conversation with the man who shared his views it meant that it, it was not a pro, it was, he, you know, there was no way he could participate in uh, the discussions regarding whether to indict. I, I wonder uh, if the eth- the ethics folks at the Justice Department would 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 would, would take the same position here. Yeah, I think that is a well-understood ethical principle, right? I mean, even if if you went to a lawyer to seek a consultation um, on an issue and had a one-hour conversation, here's the, the issue, and the lawyer talked to you about, you know, how they might approach it, if you're then approached by the opposing party to represent them, I think you would be you were, you're required to say, I can't. So I think you, that is exactly right. I would be... The question is, what were the contents of that conversation? And we can assume that that is the case. I'm guessing that he would say, no, that's not what happened. We just we don't know. The breeze. Mm, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, I will say that, um, you know, he has publicly said he won't recuse, or at least there's been public reports that he won't recuse. Uh, this, it seems to me, uh, another lapse in judgment with, in, to not at least have the the ethics uh, folks at the Justice Department take a look at that and determine whether or not he's re- he's either required to recuse himself or should recuse himself uh, strikes me as very poor judgment. And perhaps uh, it has something to do with the fact that Trump's main beef with Jeff Sessions is that he did follow the advice of career officials who, who indicated that he needed to recuse himself. Right. I mean, I disagree with Sessions' position on many things. I do think that is one thing he did right, um, and he did that in accordance with, you know, lawyerly ethical principles. Um, Rod Rosenstein did the same thing um, in terms of whether he would be able to supervise the Mueller investigation because, as you know, he was uh, involved in drafting the letter that, on the basis mm-hmm. for which Comey was fired. Um, you know, I would what I would want is for Whitaker to get that ethical guidance, because, again, the issue here is not only whether there is an actual conflict of interest, but whether there's a perception of a conflict of interest. Because in law enforcement in particular, it is so important that people have faith in the outcome, whatever it is. And let's say Mueller comes out and says, you know, I don't think the president obstructed justice. At this point, I think there would be a lot of Americans who, you know, if it were under Whitaker, who would say, well, is that really what he came to, the conclusion? Or was he pressured or was he somehow maneuvered into coming to that because of this new supervisor? And you'd never want people to lose faith in the legitimacy of our justice system. Exactly right. I mean, ironically, it could ultimately hurt uh, Trump if, if as, you po- as you point out in that example, uh, the conclusions are... Um 
are uh, are uh, favorable, favorable to, him. to him. Yeah, exactly. So you know, just I, I alluded to. I want to uh, talk a little bit about some of his other views because Whitaker has come into uh, under fire for a whole bunch of different views, and one of them, which is a bit ner- law nerdy, but I think is actually really <laughs> important, uh, is his view of Marbury versus Madison. Uh, and just to offer some background for folks, uh, Marbury versus Madison is an, I think it's an 1803 decision. It's arguably the most famous Supreme Court case. It's arguably the most important Supreme Court case. It's been hailed for, you know, hundreds of years as this uh, great Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's the decision that determined where the Supreme Court determined that it had the power to strike down uh, laws and actions that are unconstitutional. Uh, and so a lot of the decisions that have been made, Brown versus Board of Education that struck down uh, segregation laws and so forth, have been law, have been based on that principle that was in Marbury versus Madison. Um, uh, Mr. Whitaker indicated at some point that he disagreed with that decision. He thought it was wrongfully decided. What's your take on, on all of that, Asha? <laughs> Honestly, when I read that, I just laughed. I mean... <clears throat> it's a wacky position for any lawyer to hold, right? Because it's just so, I mean, this is literally the first case that any law student reads as a first-year law student. Um, And the court says that we have the power to say what the law is. And that's just been accepted without question ever since. That's what gives courts their power. I think ultimately, I'm not really sure how that would practically impact anything. I mean, that, you know, at this point, when someone appeals uh, or challenges the Department of Justice or the United States or laws of the United States, he's still required to go and defend it. I don't know. I I mean, is he going to tell his attorneys to go in and tell a court, an appellate court, that they don't have the power to do that? Good luck. Uh, you know, any judge, conservative or liberal or whatever their political views are, would laugh that person out of court and tell them to go home and go back to law school. So <laughs> I, I can't. I, Cer- I mean, can yeah. you imagine? No, certainly I, Chief, I Just, Chief Justice Roberts called that like the one of the greatest decisions of all time or something. So I doubt. And so did Justice Kavanaugh. Right. I don't. I, yeah, it, 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 it's silly. Uh, I do think it reveals something about him, which I'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. But I think. It is. It's very bizarre. I think equally bizarre is his praise of nullification. So nullification is essentially the principle that states can ignore and supersede federal law, which on its face seems completely uh, opposed to the text and structure of the Constitution, which makes clear that federal law is the supreme law of the land uh, or the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And then federal law supersedes state law. And um, certainly the whole purpose of having a common market and a common country is that we all are subject to federal law. It, it was an argument that in a, in a view that was pushed by um, Southerners and at times Northerners before the Civil War that seemed to die with the Civil War's uh, conclusion, but was re- resurrected by segregationists uh, during the 1950s. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I thought that was really bizarre as well. It is bizarre. And again, I would just say, Good luck. <laughs> you know, we had, um, you know, George Wallace, who tried to ignore the uh, ruling in Brown versus Board of Education and had the National Guard called on him to enforce the laws of the United States. And um, similarly, after the um, 
Obergefell ruling uh, that on the legality of gay marriage. We had that county clerk. Mm-hmm. Where was it? Was it in Kentucky or Ohio? Yeah, it was, Pam, was it remember. Pam Davis? Is that her name or something? Like yes, that? yes. Who you know, I, you don't get to decide that you don't feel like enforcing a federal law that has been determined to be valid and constitutional. Um, so again, I'm not. I I don't I don't. It's definitely wacky, and I think what where you're going is again to his judgment, his ability to. Um, kind of understand basic fundamental legal principles how that would play out in terms of what how how the department of justice would approach its job i i can't see that it would go anywhere yeah well it would be interesting i would say if for example, you had states pass uh, b- bills to legalize marijuana and the federal government uh, to, to go out, you know, to uh, follow in Sessions. Uh, you view, you know, Sessions made very clear that, you know, he was going to be enforcing federal criminal laws regarding marijuana. You could imagine if I was a defense attorney or representing a client in that situation, I would quote the attorney general saying that uh, the state of whatever state it was, California or Colorado, could nullify um, the federal law through its own its own actions or laws, right? Yes, and to use a, another example, the sanctuary cities litigation, right. where there are cities that are saying we're not going to go after illegal immigrants, um, and I think they could make the same argument as well. So this does not cut in his favor in terms of many of the objectives that this administration wants to pursue. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that, that that's, a, I think, an excellent example because it's it's currently involved in litigation. You know, the, the Justice Department's involved in that litigation right now, and it's very high profile going after uh, localities in California. And, of course, this, the last view of his that I wanted to, to highlight was his view that uh, judges should have a biblical uh, view of justice, um, that they a New Testament view, he said specifically. So I guess that excludes Jewish people. We've obviously had some very famous Jewish uh, uh, judges and Supreme Court justices. Uh, you know, I don't. I have, uh, and the Hindus and Muslims are, are totally out. Yeah, you guys are screwed. <laughs> yeah, Hindus, uh, Muslims, uh, atheists, all those people are all screwed. Um, that you know, and I'll just kind of come to sort of and to kind of put forward what I kind of my conclusion from all this is, you know, what I see in. And Matt Whitaker is a man who he has let his ambition override uh, everything else. And look, I think there's nothing wrong with ambition to get to become attorney general or um, president or any of these these titles, senator, or any of these things. You certainly have to be an ambitious person. There's nothing wrong with that. But w- along the way, you have opportunities to kind of take different forks in the road. And, you know, I judge it, you know, I, we had a disagreement maybe about his legal analysis. I, I will tell you, I've gotten a lot of pressure to say things, you know, I get asked all sorts of times and people get disappointed when I tell them I don't, I'm skeptical of what Mueller is, you know, whether Mueller is going to be able to indict this person or that person, or I don't regard these tweets as uh, witness uh, tampering, or, you know, there's a lot of times where I say things that I think a lot of my followers or listeners disagree with, but I, I want to be honest with them and, and forward with them. And I, and similarly, when I ran for attorney general, um, it would be very tempting for me to say things that people wanted to hear that were 
you know, irresponsible. And what, what Whitaker, I think, was doing, a lot of this is he ran for office in Iowa. He was appealing to the conservative base in Iowa. And they maybe wanted to hear that judges should be uh, animated by the Bible, that they were going to nullify Obamacare uh, and whatever. Marbury versus Madison was, was garbage. But for a lawyer to say those things suggests to me a person who regards their ambition as so above everything else that they're willing to compromise their principles. And when I see a guy who's also, you know, you know, kind of going behind Sessions back to have these meetings and building this relationship uh, to undermine him, uh, what I just see is, is a person who lacks the moral compass that we would want in an attorney general. I, I don't, what, do you, what, do, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, just as you were saying the words forks in the road, that's exactly the phrase that came to my mind. And I think it goes to his decision to be a public commentator. I mean, I think when you go down a road where you decide to opine and give your views, even if they're, you know, extreme, to, you know, offer your positions on things, you are calling into question your impartiality. And so in some ways, I think you're making a decision then that you're not going to seek a position that expects you to be completely impartial. <laughs> hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's strange to me that he's gone down the road of wanting to run for office, of uh, being on TV, and then is also okay with this job, because this is this particular job, a job in the Department of Justice, is really kind of one of the few positions that are completely at odds with those other choices. Um, and it seems to me that you would have made the choice of, well, I guess I'm never going to be attorney general, you know? Um, and, and the interesting it, thing, of course, is the last attorney general was elected officials, United States senator. And Jeff Sessions has a lot of views that people disagree with. But ironically, I think they were mostly views that, you know, there were views that either were within the political mainstream or, you know, the Republican or conservative political mainstream, or they were things that were far in the past. There was a lot of allegations of racism back when he was the United States attorney and so forth. But, you know, that all got litigated out. I think ironically, in a short period of time, Matt Whitaker has more sound bites and more uh, problematic positions than he took uh, in a very short career than than perhaps even Jeff Sessions over a longer period of time. Yes, and what's really shocking is the fact that, according to reporting, the White House has been caught off guard by this, that they didn't know all of this. Yeah, that's just a clown, clown show. I mean, I don't know what to say <laughs> other than, uh, you know, I mean, anybody, if you did a basic Google search, you knew who this guy was. I mean, within 24 hours, uh, I figured out, okay, yeah, this is that guy who was on television talking to Asha Ringapa, uh, you know, and so forth and so on. It wasn't that hard to figure out who this guy was. You'd have to think that some basic um, uh, vetting was done. I mean, really, if if they didn't know that level of information about him, 
then less vetting went into that than goes into, you know, a lot of companies, uh, new hires, right? You know, hiring a new CFO yeah. at a local company. Um, so let's talk about, before we go, I want to talk about one last issue, which is, you know, you are what I'm going to call a Whitaker optimist. Uh, and I don't mean that in, in the sense that you're supporting him, but in the sense that you're, you're optimistic about various, uh, circumstances that might, uh, limit his ability to, uh, impact the Mueller investigation. And I am probably more on the pessimistic side of whether or not, um, those um, those um, whether or not those uh, roadblocks would, in fact, deter him. W- w- would you uh, be able to just pr- explain to us briefly what your what your view is on that? Yes. So, you know, I've read the special counsel regulations quite carefully. And as you know, from being a prosecutor and I from being an investigator, you you reach certain stages in investigations where it's a little bit of a point of no return. Um, there are rules and standards that that cases and investigations have to meet before they proceed to the next step. Everything is documented. You have to justify things to either not move forward or to go to the next step. And I think those are really important here, and people, uh, you know, lay people don't fully appreciate that, that it's very hard for one person, even somebody at the top, I think, to completely take something off the track. So there's a few ways, I think, in, specifically that Whitaker has an uphill battle to derail the Mueller investigation specifically. So the first is the most obvious way that he might be able to derail the investigation, and he's actually stated this, is to starve the investigation of resources. So the person supervising the Mueller investigation has the power to approve the budget. If they don't approve a budget, then Mueller really doesn't have the means or the staff to continue the investigation. So the regulations, though, provide that the budget has to be approved within 90 days before the start of the fiscal year. So at this moment, at the moment that Whitaker took over, the budget had already been approved for fiscal year 2018, which started on October 1st. So Mueller has the budget and resources in place to continue until September of next year. The next approval comes in June of 2019. So I don't think that that is an option for Whitaker right now. The second way that he could derail the investigation is to deny approval for investigative or prosecutorial steps that Mueller wants to take. Uh, Mueller doesn't have to, he doesn't have day-to-day supervision by the person overseeing him, but he does have to get their approval uh, to take certain steps, whether it's, say, to start a FISA or, or execute a search warrant or issue a subpoena. And Whitaker could theoretically at this stage uh, still do that for steps that have yet to be taken. But here's the thing. The criteria that's laid out in the special counsel regulations is that the request that's made by the special counsel is so inappropriate or unwarranted under established departmental policies and procedures that it should not be pursued. And I don't know about you, but Mueller's a I, I think Mueller is a pretty seasoned prosecutor and knows sure. what he's doing when he takes the next step. And not only that, but the special counsel regulations state that the views of the special counsel must be given great weight. 
And so I think for Whitaker at this stage to look at the evidence that's been amassed and to actually put his name on a paper that says, I deny this request uh, because it's so inappropriate or unwarranted, is a really high standard for him to meet. He would have to sign his name to that. And the last thing is that when he does that, when Mueller's investigation concludes, every decision that he has denied gets reported to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, the chairs and the ranking members. And here's why the blue wave matters. Because starting in January, the House Judiciary Committee, at least, will be chaired by a Democrat. And they will get a list of all of these things that he's denied, and they can haul him in and have him answer for them. And if he's done, if he has tried to obstruct the investigation without any legal or valid basis, that will be clear. And he is essentially exposing himself to criminal obstruction of justice. I think that's a huge risk for him to take. Yeah, so I... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, 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 go ahead. So I I just, you know, Mm -hmm. I have faith that those things are enough, like, parameters and disincentives that like almost have to keep him in line, even against his own worst impulses. So um, as to the budget, I think you're right. Until June, that's a non-issue. Uh, unfortunately, I do think Whitaker uh, at this stage, well, unless he gets, uh, unless uh, Trump and his administration bow to uh, political pressure or something like that, you know, he very well may be around in June uh, at this stage. He has 210 days, and I think that can be extended if there's a nominee. Um, so at least it's possible, but it's certainly not an immediate problem. And Mueller, that gives Mueller at least a, a good deal of runway, uh, several months to to keep going. Um, as to him signing his name, you know, I think there is something to that. Um, I had, I think, previously argued in a piece I wrote in the Washington Post, maybe in December or January, that if Trump, I said Trump hasn't fired Mueller because it would be, uh, it would be, um, you know, it would be worse for him to fire him. And and I kind of walked through why. And one of my arguments was when you close an existing investigation, you have to in, give reasons in writing why you decline yeah. on the Justice Department, why you decline the investigation. And I would not, if I was uh, some toady, want to be writing and putting my name to something where I'm essentially lying and saying there isn't uh, evidence to indict, let's say, Roger Stone when their fact is or so forth or so on. Um, so I do think there's something to that. One thing I will say, you know, to me, it really comes down to where uh, Matt Whitaker's head is at. So, you know, here's a man who, by all accounts, he got himself on TV to be noticed by Trump and interviewed for these jobs and got himself on Trump's radar, you know, around sessions back. He's this hyper ambitious guy. He's taken some extreme positions, perhaps to get votes in Iowa. Does he now realize, okay, I've made it. I'm an attorney general, or at least for a temporary period of time, attorney general of the United States, and my actions are going to be um, considered for his, in history and for all time. How I conduct myself is going to um, impact the entire you know, United States of America and, and our future. 
uh, in which case he, I certainly think he's going to be careful about signing his name. Or is he interested in being a conservative hero and having Lindsey Graham and others applaud him the way they've applauded in the past at certain things and say, you know what, I'm going to deep six this. I'm, I'm going to deny your ability to subpoena Donald Trump because you shouldn't. I just think it's wrong. It's a witch hunt or whatever. I just what I, if it, you know if Whitaker is trying to play some play this in from a purely from a political standpoint and trying to gain favor with Trump's base, I could see him constantly asking uh, Mueller to, to explain his decisions in writing, which I think he's entitled to do under the regs, just to slow Mueller down and basically look for opportunities where he can get away with challenging something that he does or constrain him um, in a way that he could defend. Not to the general public, maybe, but to the same people who might have been excited about the fact that um, you know he wants biblical judges or that he thinks the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. That's my concern. And that that is a possibility, but I again, that would be an incredibly short-sighted view um, because again, I think that from you know, you know as well as I do that the FBI agents and their prosecutors, they have a single mission, which is to serve justice. For and sure. I think I think he would face internal opposition and even possibly whistleblowing um, mm-hmm. that would override. In other words, whatever the PR benefit to him could potentially be overridden by the PR damage um, from career people. And let's not remember, I think, the Trump card, so to speak here, who is Mueller himself. When this investigation concludes, Mueller is, again, a private citizen. True. Congress and the House, you know, could call Mueller in, and he could testify to exactly what he had, what he knew, what what his evidence was, um, his impressions of, of Whitaker even. I mean, there's, you know, there's no executive privilege that could be asserted over that. Nobody could stop him. I mean, Comey was able to go and testify as well. And I think here, even Republicans are afraid of Robert Mueller. I mean, they're not going to try to well, knock on wood, but I think <laughs> he still has the moral authority over uh, Whitaker, um, or really, I think anyone who would be in his place. So, yeah, I think... I, I think it would be professional suicide. I don't say, you know, never say never in this administration. There are so many things that are happening now that you would have never imagined two years ago. But I don't think it will end well for him if that's where he chooses to go. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right. And I, I do agree with you that the Justice Department and FBI are filled with, you know, some really fantastic people who devote their entire lives to defending us, uh, to uh, stopping people who are trying to harm this country and and break our laws, and they will not like uh, or would not like someone uh, trying to undermine their work. So I I couldn't uh, I couldn't agree more with that. I think there's a there is some you know reason for optimism, and listeners can decide uh, where their views come out. <laughs> thank you so much, Asha, for being on the podcast. I can't thank you enough. You're amazing. Thank you, Renato. This was great. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. Until next time, let's stay on topic.
I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.